Section 26, Blue Suede Pumas. With every passing minute, two new systems became wired. A new connected network appears every 40 minutes. In 1993, more than 25 books appeared on the shelves of major bookstore chains. Jay Allard's memo, Windows, the next killer application on the internet. Back home, I went to Jay Allard's office in one of the single X buildings just across the walkway from building eight. He had a typical Microsoft interior office for a junior program manager, but his had an aquarium with some sort of reptile in it. Yuck. We were both wearing blue suede retro Puma Clydes. Because of our footwear, I was able to forgive the reptile, which even after showing up at his office a hundred times made me uncomfortable. The online version has a photo of my favorite Puma Clyde sneakers. Jay graduated from Boston University in 1991, and Microsoft was his first job. At BU, he worked in the computing facilities, much the way I did at Cornell, and we bonded over that. He described the job he was given at Microsoft as, make this TCP problem go away. He joined the networking group at a time Steve B. was still running systems, which included the always struggling Landman product. TCP referred to the customer problem Steve was seeing where Microsoft did not support the technology that was rapidly becoming the preferred protocol in business networks, TCP IP. This was a time when the choice of a network protocol was a strategic business decision guided by IBM, DEC, and hopefully Microsoft someday. And few would think of using what was generally considered an academic research platform. This was one of my first lessons in Microsoft challenges in developing an internet-centric strategy. It was new to me, but for Jay, it was the daily battle or grind he already faced. Microsoft thought it would develop a connected PC by also developing the networking protocols that connected the PCs. There was a great deal of work that had gone into many layers of the networking software. Microsoft would do a better job if all parts of the network were running Microsoft software. Microsoft was not unique in thinking this, but it was late to the party. The internet didn't work that way, though. Protocols themselves were openly developed. Vendors developed their own implementations of those protocols, but they needed to interoperate with all the other parts of the network and other implementations. Jay's job was to make sure Microsoft had great support for TCP IP, the base networking layer for the internet. Some big commercial and government customers were early in adopting TCP IP, including money center banking and defense departments, who were very large Microsoft customers. To the Windows and NT teams, TCP IP was one of several ways of connecting. Windows NT was designed from the start to be networking agnostic, but solidly favored and made a bet on TCP IP, which was a significant departure for a Microsoft product, and also evidence of the difference between NT and Landman. Chicago was working hard to support NetWare's protocols, which were the current business and small business leader, with TCP IP support coming from an NT team in an evolving partnership Jay Allard described to me. He was tracking the public sources of data and was seeing exponential growth in the use of the internet. This is really what got everyone's attention, including and especially Bill G. Bill G gravitated towards the exponential. The internet was over 2 million connected nodes back then. Today, a node might mean a house with dozens of devices on the internet or a business with tens of thousands. Then, a node was a single computer, a Mac like a Cornell or a Gopher server. It was estimated that 25 million people, and thus computers, were using the internet, 
and it was growing at a rate of more than 5% per month, 70% per year. Importantly, all the companies that offered networking over phone lines and leased lines were starting to offer internet, or what was called packet-switched connectivity to businesses. The numbers were breathtaking. The online version has some charts from Jay's memo on internet growth in total systems from 1986 to 1993. By way of comparison, about 37 million PCs were sold in 1994, but growth was slowing to about 12% per year. Given the lack of internet capabilities of Windows, there was a clear challenge in that Macintosh might become the preferred internet PC. And with the internet growing much faster from a similar base, the numbers could be substantial. Simply by growth metrics, the internet was going to swallow PCs. During our discussion, Jay offered more technical details on the services Windows required in order to be the first-tier internet device that we had hoped on both the desktop and the nascent Windows server market. The largest volume by bytes was email, but the newest service, the one used by Mosaic, was growing at an astronomical rate. At the time, there were just over 600 web servers or sites worldwide, and estimates that over 1 million people were using Mosaic which users downloaded from a university site by FTP, a geeky and wonky tool if there ever was one. There wasn't a lot on the internet compared to what America Online or CompuServe offered, and like so many things that ended up being disruptive shifts, it had a toy-like feeling. The WWW server that concerned Jay and team the most was that their biggest competitor, Novell Networks, had already put all their networking documentation on the internet on novell.com. Jay showed me a larger tower PC with a network cable going up through the ceiling where a tile had been pushed aside. Jay introduced me to two members of the team, David Treadwell, email David TR, a developer on networking, and Henry Sanders, email Henry SA, a more senior dev manager. I already knew David from Common Connections and College Recruiting. Henry, it turns out, went to Cornell and was a terminal operator at the same time as me, though he graduated a year ahead. I remembered him. He did not remember me at all. Henry had a good deal of fun in college. The online version has the schedule for terminal operators from Cornell from October of 1985, and two of the names are me and Henry Sanders. The three of them formed the bulk of the TCP IP networking team. They were building out Microsoft's TCP IP layer and additional services required for the internet, such as FTP for transferring files and Telnet for connecting to other computers, the bare minimum required to claim an entree into the internet world compared to the Mac or especially Unix. The large tower computer was an important demo. The team had created an FTP server so people could download Microsoft software. Microsoft made a version of MS-DOS freely available, but did not have distribution beyond the private services like CompuServe. Jay said that with no marketing, tens of thousands of people were downloading free MS-DOS from this one computer sitting in a hallway running pre-release Windows NT and one of the earliest and most arcane internet apps, FTP. Software patches and updates were also placed there. Over 50,000 people per week visited ftp.microsoft.com, essentially as customer support, in lieu of getting the same materials at our preferred CompuServe for a connection fee. A local company provided internet connectivity for Microsoft headquarters, 
and we were nearly all of their volume. And with Microsoft's traffic, the equivalent of 25% of the largest provider on the internet. It was crazy. In a big company, the first step of solving a cross-company problem was to make sure there was someone actually working on it. Usually a bunch of people say they are, but they really aren't. Big companies love to stake claim on an area, but digging in reveals little more than a hobby or a side project. On a good day, only one person was working on a problem. Systems had a phrase for this, cookie licking, or laying claim to a technology area without actually working on it. Jay really was working on Microsoft's internet strategy. His only challenge was that he was in the networking group and working on the low-level plumbing, not the consumer experience that was on display at Cornell. That's where my role as technical assistant, or TA, came in. It was to bring together the right people with the right level of both technical understanding and management responsibility to create a coherent strategy. That was all. Jumping to a conclusion, and the main tool I had as a TA, the power of convening. We needed to have a big emergency offsite. I told Jay, after hearing about the opportunities and challenges, that I would push Bill G for one. Bill loved offsites. At the end of an unrelated meeting, I told him we needed to do an offsite on the internet. He grabbed his pad and felt tip and sketched out a calendar, an actual calendar, for what remained of March and April, identifying travel dates, important meetings, and the like, all from memory. He was obsessed with his use of time and calendar constraints. A few scratches and arrows, and we had a date. Before I could begin my adventure, though, I had one problem. I could not get on the internet. Jay fixed that by connecting, a pun, me with Dave Lineweber, email Dave L., an old-timer in Microsoft Information Services, MIS, which was the IT organization that ran the company network. I emailed Dave L. right away. The subject line, DTAP, which was how one described a direct tap or access to the internet. Dave L. arrived at my office, having never really been summoned over to our building before. Before connecting me, he talked at great length about how risky the internet was for the network security and what a big problem this could be. He also talked about how much it was going to cost in internal billing. After some negotiating and me explaining I understood the company's concerns, we agreed and I received authorization for my DTAP, a bright red network cable in a separate jack with a warning label. The rule was that I could not connect a machine to both networks at the same time, and any machine that was connected to the red plug could never be connected to the regular corporate network ever again without first erasing the hard drive. I needed a new computer for my setup, just as Apple released the PowerBook Duo. It was a slick portable with a fancy motorized docking station that inhaled and exhaled the laptop with a lovely whirr. It had a trackpad. The bulky compact LTE with a goofy trackball mounted vertically on the screen was an embarrassing contrast. Plus, most of the internet software I'd seen to date was Macintosh first or Macintosh only. I set up the Mac with an IP address as per Dave L. My Mac became one of the 2 million nodes directly on the internet. On the front of the Mac was a sticker with the IP address that would assign to both me and the jack in the wall. I immediately began to download software. I first had to find an FTP client, which I did by transferring a floppy from my Windows PC after downloading the client from CompuServe on Windows. From there, I connected the dots. I felt like I was in graduate school again, 
Back then, my DAC worst station was assigned an IP address, and I went and added that to the university's hosts table, which then communicated to all the other computers on the network at the university and everywhere. The current mechanisms we have today of having a private internet address, those 192.168 addresses, was still a year or more away from general deployment. Using Gopher from the University of Minnesota, I located programs for Internet Relay Chat, IRC, which was a successor to the talk program I used in college, or programs for reading Usenet News. And then finally, I got to Cello and eventually Mosaic. Soon, I had a folder full of internet applications, which I labeled Information Superhighway. I also learned that AOL could use an internet connection if it existed, instead of a slow dial-up connection. So I was experiencing AOL, except it was extremely fast. How fast? Well, that DTAP running on a shared, what was called T1 line I had, was about the speed of today's 3G mobile phones, or less than 1 megabit per second but substantially faster than dial-up's maximum of 56 kilobits per second. The online version has images of several ways that I was navigating the internet, Mosaic, Gopher, Waze, and more. It also has an image of the White House Gopher site that was set up and running, and this was due to the efforts of Vice President Gore. That first day with the internet stretched well into the early hours of the morning. I was downing Diet Cokes and making notes in a text file of cool places to visit on the internet. Surfing the web was not yet a term, but that's what I was doing. I built a list of favorite links in a text file, which was precisely what every early user did. I felt like I was back in my TV room in high school, exploring Fidonet all over again, but everything was faster, in color, and way more fun. The biggest peaceful world event happening at the time was the Lilyhammer 1994 Winter Olympics and it had an internet presence. I was able to find a page that had a camera pointed at the main Olympic stadium. Every minute, a tiny still black and white image, a little bit like the CUCME demo, refreshed. I downloaded a separate program that made it possible to watch the live feed of the Olympics. It was unbelievable. I found MTV.com, which was a rogue and unofficial page maintained by legendary VJ Adam Curry. It became a favorite of mine, given that I tuned into MTV constantly in high school when we first got cable TV. Curry set up the site a few months earlier without getting any permission, including taking the domain name. It was all about music and musicians, but it also had audio clips that could be downloaded. These clips required a separate audio player for the Sun Microsystems format that was common at the time. Apple was still charging for QuickTime and Windows formats had yet to be developed. MP3 was still a year or more away. I found several sites with song lyrics and routinely showed people REMs, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine, comparing different interpretations of a song with rather fluid lyrics. MTV actually sued Curry, and eventually he surrendered MTV.com to the corporate masters. A few years later, streaming arrived, but at the time, what we were seeing was mind-blowing. Think of the most mind-blowing product experience you ever had. The product experience that left you speechless, almost hyperventilating, with a million questions and a million ideas and a million possibilities. I had already experienced that with so many of the firsts in my own computing life. An Atari, dial-up bulletin board systems, the first IBM PC, Sun workstations and the Xerox Star in college, Macintosh in 1984, 
Windows, and on and on. But none of those, none of those compared to the internet in 1994. Talk about the luck of timing. I experienced all those things when they were firsts. So at the very least, I could calibrate my own reaction to the internet. While it was swell that I could see this stuff, I needed to get more people excited and soon. I felt Microsoft was behind. And as soon as people saw this, they would see the same level of urgency I did. I quickly became an internet evangelist. The first stop was Bill G. I was about to begin a huge lesson in how to change a large company. I was excited and very scared.